The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how you doing, Ben? I am doing great. I am enjoying the Labor Day weekend. I do have one little thing. My uh, schedule at work, Mondays are my day off, and so everybody else is like, man, it's so awesome, and I'm like, no, it's the exact same. <laughs> You know, so the other 46 weeks a year, it works out pretty well for me. But on these holiday weekends, I'm like, I should get Tuesday off. No, that's what I think. Yeah, I should should get that extra day. Yeah. So how's it going down where you're at? Not too bad. Uh, I'm off work, so I'm enjoying my Labor Day off and just kind of hanging out. Worked on a website a little bit. My wife's watching and watching Game of Thrones, so I was uh, catching up some, reliving some some uh, episodes that with her. And I was like, "What do you mean you're watching Game of Thrones? Like the whole world, wife is? Yeah, I was say so. She's never seen it before, or she just decided to rewatch. So we watched it together for a while, and then we like I started watching it more, and she didn't watch it as much, and so I finished the show, and she hasn't. So I think she's in like season Terrible. six now. Terrible. She's catching up. It's okay. That is just terrible, Ben. How could you let that happen? It happens, but anyway. So, Ben has arranged another excellent guest for the show. Ben, do you want to introduce? Sure. Tom, this will be our first international guest, so that's pretty awesome. So, let's welcome Dr. Orlina to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. So, how are you today? I am absolutely fabulous, and I have to say, I love Game of Thrones, and I watched it in Spanish so that I could learn Spanish. Nice. Okay. Okay, so that is an interesting way, because (laughs) since Game of Thrones actually has some different languages in it, so what you're doing is translating Dothraki into Spanish so that you can then learn it that way. (laughs) Did I catch that right? Okay, so... That is impressive. <laughs> she speaks. She speaks Russian in a French accent. Like she could do everything. So, yeah, that didn't come across in the in the dubbing. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Alina, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of continue on with our show here. I would love to. As you may tell from my accent, I'm from the United Kingdom. I'm from England, but I actually live in Spain now, which is why I was learning Spanish. I worked as a pediatric doctor, and I think we've been here, goodness, nearly 10 years now. So now I work online and do inspiring people to live healthy lives. 
Well, we certainly need some inspiring, especially Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you had the podcast and your website and how long have you been working on those? Ah, oh, that is a long question. So I started off doing healthy eating for kids because I worked as a pediatric doctor and I have four children and two of them were very picky. And this is the problem that parents present with, you know, they get picky eaters. So really at the back end of that, it's about healthy eating, because if you don't care about what your kid eats, then picky eating isn't a problem really. So I started off doing that. And then I, what they say, pivoted and started working with mothers and the reason for that was because, well, the best way to teach your kids healthy eating is to demonstrate it yourself. And a lot of the parents weren't doing that. And now I really do the whole family. So looking at the mother and working out how we can have healthy habits and healthy systems so that we can just do it all without thinking. And so to answer your question, I've had my podcast, which is more focused on adults for a year and a half now. Very nice. We uh, actually just did our two-year anniversary show uh, last week, so that was pretty awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So, Well, Tom, let's do our social media part, and then we'll uh, let Dr. Alina plug her stuff as well, and then we'll get into our conversation. So if you like this episode or this show, and we know that you do because you're listening to it, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. You can find us on the web. We're at www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, if you want to reach out to us and be on the show, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Also, don't forget our merchandise shop, justsomepodcast.com slash shop. And we have all kinds of cool merchandise there. Tom, what else can they do to help us out? Well, Ben, they can go to the Just Some Podcast website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom. They'll see a banner for Amazon affiliate uh, shopping. Now that I just messed that up. <laughs> And then what they can do is they can click on that before they put anything in their cart, before they browse any products. So that way, everything they buy has a small amount of proceeds that come back to the show, and we would really appreciate it. It costs you nothing, and you won't even know we were there. Dr. Orlina, do you want to tell us about some of your social media? Well, thank you for asking. I think I would just stick to my podcast, which is Fit and Fabulous at 40 and Beyond. And it's Healthy Living for Families Made Easy. And we will make sure that we get a link to that dropped in our show notes so that anybody who wants to listen to it certainly can. Thank you so much. And I would point out, so I started to go through your catalog before the show and are most of your shows like in that 30 minute range? That's what they seem to be. Yeah, I try. So I have some which are solo ones and I try and keep those to 20 minutes because, you know, mothers are busy and they don't have heaps of time for doing so. I know everybody's busy, but mothers have lots of stuff going on. When I get guests on, sometimes they go a little bit over because they're so interesting and I get carried away asking questions. But yes, I do try and keep them to 20, 30 minutes. Well, I just like that. It was like a nice, that's a good length of time for podcasts, especially when someone's looking for something to listen to while they're busy or maybe on short commutes. And I just thought that was like a, a really nice factor involved in it. Also, I noticed for those that are interested in looking up her podcast and we were talking about this before the show is it's not all just directly related to diet like the episode i started listening to was about how keeping your house decluttered can make staying healthy easier is that correct is that the thing yeah. i kind of hit on there doc yeah exactly that was one with a fabulous le um, guest called lisa and i i'm gonna mess up her surname it's zaroski 
And so one of the things that I really love is habits and how we just get into habits and do things without thinking. So actually, I love to talk about nutrition, but here you go. It's all about the vegetables, basically. And so there's not heaps <laughs> and heaps to say about it. It's about why we do things and why we don't do things. And, you know, that kind of stuff is really interesting. And that episode was all about how if we set up our kitchens and our habitat, then we're setting ourselves up for success rather than, you know, like when you go into the kitchen and you open a cupboard and everything just falls out. But at that stage, you're thinking, I'm just going to have that frozen pizza rather than, hey, I want to make this wonderful, tasty salad or vegetables or whatever it is. So it's those kind of ideas, thinking about why we do things. Very interesting. Yeah, I say, I thought it was really interesting and I can't wait to listen to some more. And if that sounds interesting to our crowd, I highly suggest that they take a listen to her podcast. And on that note, Ben, can you think of anything else that we need to cover before we start? No, I don't think so. So unlike Orlina, who likes nice, bite-sized, easy-to-digest episodes, we like to punish our listeners with hour-long episodes. <laughs> so <laughs> so we're, we're going to break it down. And while it's still going to be the same length of time for us, it is going to be actually basically like a two-part, Ben. Is that correct? So yeah, we wanted to kind of do a two-part episode, and, we, and Dr. Orlina was gracious enough to visit with us uh, or agree to visit with us for, for an extended period of time. But one of the things that we wanted to do was, you know, we've always strived to have international guests. And so the first part of the episode, we're going to talk kind of how the difference between uh, medicine where they practice to where they are uh, is versus where we are based out of, which is the United States. And then the second part, we're going to kind of deep dive more into her uh, Fit and Fabulous podcast and uh, some of her pillars of education. So that's where we're at, Tom. Well, I'm excited to get started. So let's do this thing. So Dr. Rolini, you said you were a pediatric physician in the UK. So can you kind of, can you walk us through what that looked like? What, in terms of my daily experience? Actually, I would like to start with what is the training and everything that leads up to that? And then yes, what is like a daily look in the life of a pediatrician? Okay. So, well, when I trained, we have a different training system from you. So I think we even have different like school exams than you. So we do our school exams at around the age of 18. We call them A-levels and we, oh goodness, I'm telling my age now. They've changed them since I did them. <laughs> when I did them, we did three, perhaps three and a half. You could do a half exam, four. And then we go on to university and that's kind of normal. And a, a standard university degree in the UK is three years. Um, medicine is five years, except some people do what's called intercalate, which is to take an extra year. And between your second and your third year, you do essentially the third year of a different exam. So something that's related like physiology or anatomy, and you do the final exams in those. And so you get another degree as well. Now, I didn't do that. I did the standard five years. And so my title is MB, oh my goodness, what is it? MB, CHB, SB, which is basically, I think I've even said that wrong, that I have a degree in medicine and surgery. And then after that, and they've changed this as well since I trained many, many, many years ago. <laughs> they now have sort of streamlined it a little bit more. But we start off by being what we were affectionately called a houseplant, 
we were called a pre-registration house officer. And that's before you become a fully fledged doctor, but you're paying, you're getting paid and you're working in a hospital. When I was doing it reasonably long hours, they've changed that and they've reduced the hours that doctors do because, well, when I trained, England and the UK was in the European Union and we had rules that governed that. And so we went through a stage where we had to reduce the number of hours that we would work every week. So we would do that and then we would be a junior doctor for several years, what we would call a senior house officer, and then a middle grade officer, a middle grade doctor, which is someone who's you know really quite high up. And then eventually you become a consultant. That's if you want to be a hospital doctor. And that training really depends on what speciality you want to do. Obviously, if you want to be, so we have a different health system from you guys. So we have family doctors that we call GPs, and they are your first port of call. And obviously, if you want to train and be a GP, you do a slightly different training, which generally looked like a few years of senior house officer jobs, and then you would go on and do your family medicine membership. So for me, I think, I can't remember exactly how long I worked for. I did around 10 years of training of and working in that system. And again, they changed the system whilst I was doing it. So now it's much more streamlined. Whereas when I was there, we had to look for different jobs after every six months. It was all a little bit unorganized. Whereas now you say, right, I'm gonna do pediatrics right from the beginning. And so your your training is really sort of streamlined and that's what you want to do. And you obviously have to do exams through that. So I did what's called my membership exams to, to be in the pediatric Royal College. Um, and then eventually you become this fully fledged consultant doctor who is, you know, the high and mighty consultant. And there were lots of rude jokes about <laughs> consultants, but I won't say them on. <laughs> so that was my training. And I left that training because I moved to Spain. And I have to confess, I kind of thought I was going to carry on where I left off because we were all in the European Union, but it didn't quite happen like that. So to cut a very long story short, I ended up doing things online instead. So what made you want to go pediatrics versus GP versus something else? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think probably slight accident, you know, because if you look at family doctors, the GP doctors, they, they weren't doing weekends, they weren't doing late shifts. In fact, when I was a student, the government did this sort of slightly tricksy thing where they basically gave GPs a huge great pay rise. And so everyone in my cohort thought, oh, goodness, being a GP is going to be fabulous. We're going to get paid absolutely bucket loads of money and our lifestyle is going to be great. Whereas hospital doctors didn't quite have that. UK doctors do get paid a reasonable salary, or I should say a good salary. But, you know, that came with nights and weekends. And I think for me, I enjoyed children. I did quite a lot of work when I was a student as an unqualified nurse, which is essentially being a nurse, but without giving out the drugs. So, you know, looking after people, feeding them, washing them, that kind of things. And I did quite a lot of work with elderly people who I enjoyed, but I did quite a lot of work in the children's hospital as well. And I really enjoyed that. And I could see that children could do much more for themselves and they generally get better much more quickly as well. Yeah. And after I finished my being a houseplant, I went off to Australia and I worked in Australia for a bit and they have a different system again. And I ended up working in a children's A&E department. And that really was the beginning of my pediatric career. And so when I went back to the UK, I started on the, the UK career ladder, as it was. 
So throughout this training, does Europe have a similar, so Ben and I are both nurse practitioners and there's also an equivalent called physician assistants. Does European medicine have an equivalent to mid-level providers? So like nurse practitioners? Yes. Yes. Definitely in the UK. Yes. I don't know about Spain. I have worked in Spain. Again, they have even a different system here. And so I've worked in Spain in primary health care. So like being a family doctor, but that isn't what I was doing in the UK. So it was very different for me. So I don't know about Spain. But yes, in the UK, we definitely have nurse practitioners. And did you have good experience working with those mid-level providers? Was there some way that they told you to approach them? Because in America, it seems to be a mixed bag. Some physicians tend to work very well with us and respect our opinions. And some just think that we were overqualified nurses and don't really have a lot to do with us. So what has your take been on the mid-level provider? For me, I always thought they were invaluable. In fact, to be honest, they were pretty much like a senior house officer for us. So they would often be on our rotor. And I remember doing tertiary neonates, for example. And so, you know, you come, you have zero experience as a senior house officer, really, with that very specialized area. And the nurse practitioners, they know everything and they can teach you everything. And they were lovely, friendly people. The only downside of the nurse practitioners from our point of view was that they were also on our rotor. But the thing was, they didn't do the nights and they didn't do the weekends. Or actually, I think some of them did do the weekends. But it meant that basically what they were doing was taking more of those daytime shifts away from us and making us do more of the evening and night shifts. Well, that's just a political thing, really, and not at all their fault. And if I was in their situation, I would definitely want to do that job. (laughs) You know, for me, I thought they were fabulous and, you know, a source of continuity for the ward and that area of medicine, because in the UK, the junior doctors, they're changing every six months and it can sometimes be less, but that means that, you know, just as you're getting into a job, you have to move on and go somewhere else. Whereas if you've got those providers, then they know what's going on and they understand the situation. So they're just, you know, more involved really. So yeah, for me, fabulous. I loved nurse practitioners and thought that they were just a fabulous resource for junior doctors, basically to teach the junior doctors what they needed to know. So, in the United States, as Tom and I have talked about in our show previously, we live very much in a pill-based society, and where you know everybody who comes to the quote-unquote doctor's office expects to leave with a prescription, but that's not really how it is in the UK, correct? Well, that is an interesting question. I've never worked in the United States, so I can't really compare it. But right, I do. Yeah, I see I see exactly what you're getting at and I see this problem and I think it depends on both the doctor and the patient. And I think regarding the patients or people, you can divide them into two different groups. And you know, there are definitely people who are really keen to lead a healthy life and you know, do everything they can to be healthy. They often don't end up in the doctor's office quite so much. And talking to my friends who are general practitioners, family doctors, they definitely have patients who they're not really interested in their health. They just want a a pill to fix it all. You know, they've got this problem, they've come to the GP. And I think for my GP friends, those are the people who they find really difficult to work with because they're not open to making lifestyle changes. So I think there's that difference that, you know, you can divide people that way. But I think also being really truthful, there are 
different doctors who have different takes on this. And for me, having worked in a busy hospitals and busy areas, I can see, I can understand why some doctors are very quick to give out medicines because it can just be an easy fix. And it is actually much more difficult to say, do you know what, I'm not going to give you a medicine. In fact, I was always the doctor who didn't want to give medicines. But it is more difficult to do that. Um, You have to be more sure of yourself. You have to really understand, you know, what's going on. Like we live in this time when we sort of practice defensive medicine, if that makes sense. So for example, in pediatrics, you see a child who's got spots and a fever. And worst case scenario is that they've got meningitis, which, you know, we all know is a devastating illness. But some of those children who have spots and a fever don't have meningitis. However, the vast majority of children get treated as if they have meningitis, because it's easier and safer to do that than to say, actually, I really don't think this person has meningitis. And then if you've made a mistake with that, and they do have meningitis, then the consequences are devastating. So, you know, what I would see quite a lot of is people prescribing steroids for children with respiratory problems who quite often didn't need those steroids. You know, people are quick to medicate things when really and truly you can wait a bit longer. But as I say, it's difficult to wait a little bit longer when we have these medications at our fingertips. Yeah, I can see that. So one of the big things that is problematic for U.S. providers, and I'm Ben and I have spoke about this a million times, and I I honestly don't know a provider in America that would not agree, is the payer system. So we have to deal with insurance companies, and people get charged lots of money. Yes, it, it becomes a very big hassle. Can you just tell us what it's like to practice in a system where my understanding is in the UK, none of that's required. So how does that impact your treatment? Or what is it like to have that type of treatment options where you don't have to ask an insurance company for permission to do something that you know your patient needs? Yeah, no, I've heard this about the States from my friends who've lived in the States, and they've explained this thing. And when you said this pairing system, I was like, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, I've tried to tell people that. Like in other countries, they're like, what do you mean pair system? I'm like, exactly. (laughs) So Yeah, no, what do you mean pair system? Yeah, no, I've heard this. And your pair system sounds just awful, I have to say. Just this whole idea, this concept exists. For me, you know, when I was at work, I spent my entire time caring for my patients. You know, I didn't ever, ever think about whether they could afford it, what funding there was. It was just people come in and I see them and I didn't have to spend any time thinking about money or any of that. It was just treat people and everybody gets treated evenly and they get the treatment that they need. Now, clearly, politics are politics and there's no ideal health system and politics plays a large role into your health system as well. So, you know, with different governments, some of the governments fund the health system more and some of them fund them less. But essentially, everybody gets what they want to get. So from the day-to-day basis, it's absolutely fabulous. If you sort of take a step back and look at how that actually plays out, Since I have left the UK for the last 10 years, it has been systematically underfunded compared to if you look at different countries. So, for example, Germany, they put a lot more money into their health system. 
And now obviously, you know, we all pay taxes, but what they do with those taxes is really the bottom line. And so, you know, I can see from afar, I haven't been back to the UK to work, but I can, talking to my friends and, you know, reading the media that really and truly the health service has suffered quite a lot. And now, you know, at this time when we talk about coronavirus and COVID, they have far more, sorry, far less intensive care beds per capita than other countries in Europe. So it's an interesting conversation, but from a day-to-day basis, it's absolutely fabulous. Although I do have to tell you one story. When I worked in Australia, I remember ordering an ultrasound for somebody and they have a slightly different system in Australia. And I remember asking for this ultrasound and the radiographer saying to me, I'm really sorry, doctor, you're going to have to wait 20 minutes. And my jaw nearly hit the ground as in (laughs) today, I'm going to get this ultrasound today. So I think the downside is, is that it meant that we had to wait a lot longer for things, but we just got used to that. That was just our normal life. So any investigations that we did generally took, you know, there was a waiting list for CT scans and ultrasound scans. And to get an ultrasound scan done in 20 minutes was just sort of unheard of in the United Kingdom. So how long was like an average wait for an ultrasound or or for a CAT scan? Well, it depends what that scan was for. So everything would be triage. So, you know, if you come in with a head injury, then you get your CAT scan. Well, I mean, it depends on the head injury, obviously. But if it's, you know, a serious head injury and they think they're going to need to operate on you, you'll get your CAT scan done as soon as that patient is stabilized. But then everybody will work to sort of, shift their patients, if that makes sense. Or, well, now they have okay. different systems. So for example, the surgeons have an emergency system, an emergency list that they will do. So all the emergency stuff gets done on that one list. If it's a CAT scan or a CD, an ultrasound scan that's sort of relatively non-urgent, that's not really going to make much difference to your quality of life, you could be waiting months for it. Very interesting. And one last question, because this is one of the other things I've heard people say, and it has been interesting. So one of the things that they tout in America is like, well, we have these great doctors because people want to come here because they get paid a lot. So when you talk about pay for the health service in the UK, is every doctor paid relatively the same? Is it based on specialty? Like, how do they go about reimbursing these doctors for their time? Yeah, so... The doctors are all essentially paid the same. And as you go up every single year, your paycheck goes up. So it's partly to do with your experience and it's partly to do with the number of hours you work. So we would have different rotors. So if you were working in a busy A&E department or when I was working in the neonatal intensive care unit, you're doing lots of hours. You're on a higher what they call band, which means you're doing lots of hours. Or if you're for example, working in palliative care and you have a much, much less hours, then your banding goes down and you get paid much less. Does that make sense? That does. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very interesting because I've seen documentaries where they've talked about healthcare, and I want to say it was a physician in the UK and he said, I make plenty of money, so I'm not worried. So when people are like, well, you don't make as much as American doctors, he's like, so I drive two cars instead of three. Like, it's, it, it didn't seem to be a very consequential issue. And so I didn't know how you guys felt about it, because I know that's one of the things in America. We see physicians and we think, oh, that guy must make a lot of money. And I wasn't sure how physicians were perceived in the UK. 
Yeah, no, I think within the whole of Europe, United Kingdom doctors get paid more than any doctor. So here in Spain, doctors don't get paid quite so much. That's another story. Another big difference I see, and this is something that was really, I think, ingrained in us when we were training, was that we practice medicine in a slightly different way. So, for example, my understanding is that if you go into a hospital and they want to do investigations on somebody in the United States, essentially everybody gets a CAT scan, everybody gets whatever it is, whatever investigations, you know, you do a sort of whole body investigation. Whereas in the United Kingdom, we do what we call more history based. So we get a history and we think about what is potentially wrong with that person. And then we try and exclude that or prove that that's what that's got. So not everybody gets loads and loads of investigations, particularly in pediatrics. In pediatrics, they really try to minimize the amount of investigations, mostly because obviously the invasive ones are not very nice for children. So we try and minimize the amount of blood tests that we do because we don't want to stick needles in children unnecessarily. But I think that goes across you know, not everybody gets a CAT scan. You don't go into hospital, you get basic, you know, you get x-rays and whatever, blood tests, but you don't necessarily get a CAT scan or an ultrasound unless they feel that it's clinically indicated. See, I I feel like it's a weird mixture of the two for us. And I'm sure Ben can hit on a little more because like you said, if it's emergent, you're getting a CT. Like that's done deal. I feel like in family practice, we try and be a little more judicious. And does this person really need a CT scan versus our emergency rooms, which are very defensive medicine, like you said before, and they just assume everything's wrong. And so you get everything (laughs) investigated. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, I think you can see that exactly that plays out. Yeah, especially with us. And again, I don't know how it is, and we're getting towards that middle part of the show where we're going to flip over, but I know here there's also the sense of, I don't want to get in trouble or get sued if I miss something. So we play really heavily. Sometimes that plays heavily into a decision as well. I was actually going to ask that if malpractice was a big issue in the UK. Well, that's another interesting point. And I think, again, when years ago when I was training, there was this sort of no blame culture. But I don't think that's really true. And there was a big case, which I don't know if you guys heard about it in Bristol, actually where I trained, of um, a heart surgeon, a pediatric heart surgeon, except he wasn't a pediatric heart surgeon. At that time, they were adult surgeons doing pediatrics. And one surgeon had a much higher mortality rate than others, and it wasn't really investigated properly. And eventually, an anaesthetist ended up doing what we call whistleblowing and going to the media, and it all came out. And this poor guy ended up having to go and live in Australia. I suspect he has a much more pleasant lifestyle now, but that's not really the point. And when I was training, there was really this feeling of, it's okay, the hospital has your back. We work as a team. It's not an individual blame. But as I carried on training, I could see that that wasn't actually true. And that there have been cases where doctors have really taken the rap for things that have happened, which haven't specifically been their fault. I think of one, which was a pediatric cardiac arrest. And I think that the doctor was so busy that I think it was the middle grade, as we call them, she couldn't get to the the child in time because she had so many other things doing. And I don't remember the details of the case, but essentially she ended up in court, the one on the dock who was being prosecuted for all of these things. And that wouldn't have happened a few years prior to that. It would have been, okay, we need to have a look and see where the systems are failing. 
And that's really how it should be. It should be about systems. See, I love systems, but it should be about systems and it should be about making it so that people can't make mistakes, that things are double checked. But, you know, I don't really feel that that happens. See, and I had a physician tell me one time that if you're going to lose sleep at night, you order the test. And their point was the hospital's lawyers are there to protect the hospital. And ultimately, if something screws up, you're going to be the one that's going to be held responsible. So if you're going to lose sleep at night, order the test. And so, I mean, that's kind of frequently, particularly in the emergency room, that's the the mindset that you have to take here. And, and, And it's an odd conundrum anyway, between family practice and ER, and I've done both. Here, when I work in the ER, you know, it, it's like Tom said, it's you're, you're ordering blood work, CAT scans, saunas, whatever you need, because it's very defensive. And then when I transitioned to a family practice, I can still vividly remember like my first patient that I went in and did on a preceptorship uh, with the physician. And I went in and the patient had abdominal pain. And so I come out and was talking to him. He says, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, we need to do a CBC, a CMP. We need to do, you know, get them set up for a CAT scan. And he's like, no, no, th- this is family practice. And I'm like, oh, he's like, you tell them it's probably a stomach bug and you you know, send them on their way. But you get more leniency, I think, in family practice because the families know you and, and you've built a rapport and a relationship. And so I think if someone was to come into family practice and see me and say I missed an appy, they're going to go, oh, well, you know, he didn't really mean to. I mean, it was it looked like a stomach bug and that's what he, he called it. If they go to the emergency room and you miss an appy, it's, oh, I'm going to own this hospital. Um, it, it's very, very weird. <laughs> it's, it's the best way I can word it. Yeah, it, it seems like here it's two different worlds, and depending on which side of the line you're on is which type of punishment you get. So it's, it's very interesting to hear somebody from another country go, oh, well, here's our problems because they don't feel like the same problems. <laughs> it feels like a, a big difference in problems. Tom, that's where we're going to call an end to our first or two part episode with Dr. Or Lena. And that was of course, uh, talking about the differences between uh, medicine here and medicine in the United Kingdom. I thought it was a really good talk. And I think it's important, even though we have international listeners, it's really good for those in the United States to hear, you know, those differences in the training and the, the methods that they use. And she just was a great person to talk to. So I thought it was a really good show. Yes, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, one of the things I thought personally, because she mentioned that it could take several months sometimes to get a sono or an MRI, you know, or MRI or CAT scan or something along those lines if it wasn't emergent. And I think there will be people who say, oh, well, see, see, this is why this would never work here. You know, you have to wait months for it. But I think about how many times you see a patient and say they have a knee injury. So you order the x-ray, the x-ray is fine. And then you go to order the MRI. Well, you can't get that approved through your insurance. You're going to have to wait, you know, you're going to do at least six weeks of physical therapy and then get them reassessed and then reevaluated. And then maybe you can get the MRI approved. So, I mean, at that point, you're still, I mean, the time frame is still the same, which just less stressful for everybody involved. And one of the things I saw the other day, and it was a social media post, so take it with a grain of salt, but it's a story we've all heard before. It was a man who laid out 
they had done everything right in their family. They had paid their taxes. They went to school. They paid off their student loans and they were going into retirement. And then his wife got cancer. And now they're on not just the brink of bankruptcy because they're already there. They're also looking at having to sell their house and everything else they've worked for their whole life because of this diagnosis. And when you talk to providers from other countries, and we did a little bit off the air with Dr. Orlina, they are just mind blown that these things happen. And like you said, the timeline can sometimes be the same amount of time. So I think it's important without getting too deep into these weeds for us to realize that there are things that we could do better. And I think that's one of the great things about talking to international providers is they can shed some new light on not only things that we can do better in our practices because they do it from a different angle, but shed some light on, hey, here are some things that we do overall as a system that are really good for our patients. Yeah. So if you like our episodes, of course, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Also, don't forget the next episode we talked with Dr. Orlina about her podcast, but I do want to get it in the show notes here. Also, it is Fit and Fabulous at 40 and Beyond with Dr. Orlina. We will put it in the show notes. Check it out. It's got all kinds of cool episodes that she has there. Yeah. <laughs> Man of many words there, Thomas. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, that that's pretty much it. It was a great show. I really liked talking to her. And it was really interesting, not only hearing her take on how they do training, but even her perspective on maybe these are things that are better or worse and how they interact with their mid-levels. And I, I just thought it was a great show. I hope everybody enjoys it. Yep. So on those notes, make sure you join us next week for part two with Dr. Orlina, uh, where we talk more in depth about her pillars of health and also her podcast. So until next time, have a great week. Hey, everybody. Stay safe out there. Swearing just to pass the time Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known